Hey everyone, and welcome to another Wildlife For You podcast episode, where we talk about wildlife and conservation in ways that make sense. I'm Stephanie Payne, here with my longtime friend and co-host, Daryl Radajek. You know, Dee, I, I feel like we needed some creepier intro music for this episode. Well, I agree with you there, and I admit, when you told me you wanted to talk about cryptozoology, I raised an eyebrow. Well... <laughs> Truth be told, I probably raised both eyebrows since I totally cannot do the Dr. Spock look. Um, but anyways, I was a little perplexed because we're kind of like real life scientists. Yeah. Well, tonight you get to be the scully to my Fox Mulder. Oh, is that some kind of TV or movie reference? Wow. Actually, yes, to both. Um, it's a reference to the X-Files, which I can't believe you don't know. But let me rephrase then for your sake. You get to be the skeptical voice of reason to my colorful commentary about cryptids or animals not cataloged by science. And so, you know, cryptids have been a common topic since the dawn of mankind. So it's about time for us to talk about them. Uh, if I have to. <laughs> well, but for starters, Scully... Let me formally introduce and define our topic, cryptozoology. That's a term meaning the, the pseudoscience of animals that are generally discussed because they're part of folklore or legend. So while they're rumored to exist, there's no evidentiary scientific proof. So, like I said, we talk about real science stuff. How in the world does this fit in when you just said it's pseudoscience? Well, for starters, historically, there are animals now well described by science that were once considered cryptids or legendary creatures. And it's a fun, whimsical topic, perfect for this New Year's Eve time of year. Um, plus, like I said, while cryptozoology is the study of animals not recognized by science, there's plenty of examples of animals that we know about today that used to be nothing short of fantastic stories. Uh, I don't know about that. Can you name one? I can do even better, actually. Easy examples are Komodo dragons, platypus, uh, giant squid, okapi, tapanuli orangutans, olinguidos, the vanguno giant rat. <laughs> hey, hey, <laughs> you're just making up those names. I am not. Even, even manatees or mermaids, as we think lonely sailors thought that that's what they were for such a long time. But how lonely, honestly. Do you think they needed to be to think a 1300 pound sea cow was a lonely maiden? <laughs> they were either lonely or drunk. <laughs> now, remember, I used the last last call in a bar situation to describe other biological processes. <laughs> True. Anyhow, I, I digress. I'll, I'll be happy to show you the history on discoveries for each and every one of those if you insist on later or you can research on your own. Anyhow, I should also say that definition of cryptozoology was the original definition. All right, you just said original. So the definition changed? Why does that not surprise me? Yes, Scully, it changed. In 1982, the world saw the first ever meeting of the International Society of Cryptozoologists, which occurred at the Smithsonian Institution, and they expanded the, the commonly accepted definition to now include known animals that totally shouldn't occur where they are. And that means no historical record of that animal being in that spot too. Uh, see, I get that because a known animal totally out of place could be seen as a mythical beast if it was seen in an area, especially where the people are completely unfamiliar with it. So 
I could see where rumors start and soon after the legends. And that actually does make sense there, Steph. Uh, people do love to talk about fake news. And it sure the heck spreads faster than most real news. And that's even before technology. That's a big part for sure. But honestly, the most fun cryptids are those that are still considered myth or legend. Um, and, and speaking of raised eyebrows, I'd say it raises eyebrows, especially when a myth persists for, for decades or even hundreds of years. But I mean, honestly, who can blame people for these you know, rural rumors and then others totally blowing them off? Because I mean, it, it took almost 70 years before a, a rumor of a yin-yang bear resulted in the capture and scientific evidence that we now call the giant panda. F for that matter, the lowland gorilla, it was discovered in, in the mid to early you know, 1800s. And then for years, there's all these tribal tales about a giant monster ape said to live in these misty mountain regions beyond. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds like King Kong. Yep. And, and these are just tribal anecdotes to science. Yet decades and decades later, in the early 1900s, mountain gorillas were discovered completely by accident when an army was crossing those misty mountains. And the giant ape leapt from myth to reality, though admittedly not exactly large enough for those movie specs on King Kong size. But, you know, weighing in at over 400 pounds of solid muscle, it's still pretty impressive. Yeah, and I'm getting it now because we both know species are still being discovered. But, you know, all of us scientists, we kind of look at cryptozoologists like they're they're some sort of kooky, regardless of whatever credentials they may be. And you just made me think of something. You and I both attended, I believe we both attended the same uh, meeting at Wilderness Wildlife Week in Tennessee, where we saw a presentation from a doctor who was presenting about Eastern cougars. And, yeah. and although he, he never came out and said that they exist, he talked about them as if they're they're really out there and there's a potential for them. And albeit there there could be in some instances like of an escaped pet. But given his credentials, he certainly laid the groundwork for getting all the people in attendance to believe in these the potential of going out on the east and finding these cougars. Especially I remember that picture because I remember I think I leaned over and I told you that the quality of the picture was if we can give a visual to our, our listeners, it's a picture that was supposedly taken by like a real camera, but it's, it was blurry. I mean, everything was out of focus. You couldn't distinguish even what kind of vegetation was in the background because it was a green blur. And then you have this, this Clear. thing, this reddish colored blur. <laughs> and he's swearing that that's the cougar. And I remember leaning over to you and going, I'm pretty sure that's a red panda. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was so bad. But but going back to my point, you, you have a lot of these people that go and attend these seminars. And when the person given the seminar is a doctor of some whatever credentials, they leave there pretty much convinced of whatever he wants to talk about. Well, like you said, that fake news does love to spread because I, I don't I don't disagree for the record that, that we do all kind of look at them like they're kooky. But I sometimes wonder if it's a fear of wondering what's possible versus what's known. I mean, is it the mission of, of scientists to look at what's possible or focus all of the energy on debunking 
I mean, extraordinary claims raise eyebrows, no doubt. But like you said, we are still making discoveries today. So is the fear of ridicule that plays a big role in science? Is that really the problem here? Yeah. And what I'm getting at is you're, you're saying we should find ways to answer questions instead of simply ridiculing something as absurd. But I do have to tell you about a, a certain dilemma because I, you know, as well as I, I am often involved with this debate whether or not cougars exist in e- east of the Mississippi, outside of Florida. And inevitably, someone will chime in and they'll say, prove that they're not here. And I'm always reminding people, I can't prove a negative. I, I, I cannot prove something does not exist. But on the other hand, they have to prove to me that something does exist. So there, there's, there's always that dilemma I'm, I'm always dealing with of proving non-existence. And you can't, you simply can't do that. Agreed. Agreed. That's, that's the difference between a belief versus plausible evidence. Plausible. Yes. Not even firm, but plausible. But anyway, so, I mean, scientists, they, they do need to stop being arrogant and aloof. Um, but sure, some of these air quote amazing creatures and air quote, they were invented as hoaxes just to fill news slots, you know, like, like Pogo, who's the North American equivalent of the Loch Ness Monster. Regardless of the era People seem to think that if they read it in the news or if they hear it from somebody with those credentials, that it must be true. Um, but, you know, what's the world for if we temper curiosity by labeling everything fantastical as a complete exercise in folly? Okay. Now, I, I know I know you think this topic is fun, and it, it is. But what are some of the notable cryptids or potentially real but likely not animals that you're speaking of? Okay, well, the the big three are the Yeti, a.k.a. the Abominable Snowman, um, the Loch Ness Monster, and Sasquatch, a.k.a. Bigfoot. And I have an encyclopedia of cryptids, and I think the one that you'd really enjoy that's in there, well, one of many, but it's the American Black Panther. Seriously? (laughs) I mean, I know we lecture all the time about how Black Panthers here, like when I say here, I'm talking North America, they're a myth. I didn't realize they qualified as a real cryptid, though. Oh, yeah. Look at me. I'll teach them Daryl things. So, enjoy, anyway, enjoy so can I go ahead, can. though? <laughs> enjoy it while I you will, can. I am, uh, give me my soapbox here for a second. But can I, can I go ahead and talk about the big three, though? Sure. I, I, uh, okay. Well, I have a feeling I'm not going to be able to stop you. <laughs> you are likely right. So, okay. So let's, let's start with the overseas, too. Um, Nessie, the good old Loch Ness Monster, and yetis do you have a preference um other than not talking about imaginary beasts no not really be a good sport <laughs> yes ma'am i shall try okay well we'll start with nessie so nessie or the loch ness monster surfaced in the spring of 1933 <laughs> if you tried to make a pun there it was terrible <laughs> oh hush anyhow Prior to the sudden rash of sightings, um, an, an old road running alongside the lock had been cleared and expanded using dynamite, which it removed a lot of the thick vegetation that was previously obstructing the view of the lock from the road. 
Some say it was the new visibility. Others speculate it was the dynamite that was used to clear um, the area, but it caused disturbances for things potentially residing in the lock. Anyhow, in the spring of 1933, while driving down this newly widened and cleared lakeside road, a couple reported they saw this, this huge something rolling and plunging as it moved across the lake surface. So, and they, they claim that they actually stopped their car and then like over the next minutes watched this activity. So the Inverness Courier, that's a local newspaper there, it got wind of the incident and it dubbed the creature the monster of Loch Ness. So over the next six months, dozens of sightings were reported and the Loch Ness monster was born into the international spotlight. Um, but honestly, the, the history of some strange and aquatic species in the lochs date back way further than the 1933. The, the first written account appears in the biography of St. Columba from 565 AD. Anyhow, um, there's also some recent DNA studies of the water that they did, um, and they did find presence of eel DNA. So maybe old Nessie was just an oversized eel. Oh, I don't know about that. Well, monster or not, Loch Ness is a really incredible lake. It's the largest body of freshwater in Scotland at more than 20 miles long. And in places, it's more than a thousand feet deep. And interestingly, it's also super narrow, only a mile and a half wide at the widest. And it's super, super murky. Okay. Well, getting back to real science for a minute, let's talk about how that lake formed. Okay. You betcha. So... The locks were formed uh, tens of thousands of years ago during the last ice age as these giant glaciers gouged the land as they moved forward before they started receding. After the glaciers receded and melted, the land rose a bit and both seawater and glacial melt filled the locks and the fjords. Loch Ness is interesting because it's the largest body of fresh water by volume in all of Great Britain. And it's part of a really cool system of waterways that connect by the, uh, the Caledonian canals. Um, as part of the Nessie lore, as I hinted before, it's also notoriously hard to get any underwater images because of all the peat and, and the stuff making it just stupidly murky. Okay, so give me your opinion, Professor. Real or not? Oh, uh, this one's tough. If it was just general public eyewitnesses, and no offense meant here to the general public, but... I totally dismiss any potential breeding population of some weirdo giant creature in the lock. But here's the rub. Real scientific expeditions, they were mounted to try and see what was in the lock. Um, there was a set of expeditions using sonar underwater and then like strobe bearing companion vessels in the early 1970s. And they got a couple of interesting recordings that the JPL or um, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, an organization I adore for the record, they analyzed those findings, enhanced one of the images, and had to simply concur that there's something unknown in the lock. Um, after a follow-up mission in 1975 that was sponsored by the Massachusetts-based Academy of Applied Sciences, there were zoologists at more than a few prestigious organizations like Harvard and the Smithsonian who were ready to endorse a plausible newly discovered aquatic species. In the end, though, the skeptics actually prevailed, though honestly, their claims were even more outlandish. One of them said that uh, an image that they shot was of a floating engine block. Honestly, a floating <laughs> engine block. <laughs> and they find that more plausible. But anyway, based on other things, um, 
like some film footage from the 60s, uh, you know, entities like the, the British Joint Air Reconnaissance uh, Intelligence Center or JARIC, they said that there's an animate object living in the lock that occasionally hangs out near the surface. Nothing definitive. But honestly, in the 80s and 90s, Nessie, she started to become toxic for careers. Um, so am, am I saying that we have an unknown species living in the lock? Well, that's that's not my decision, really. That's that's up to our listeners. I'm merely saying that there's a distinct possibility, and we do know that we make aquatic discoveries of species frequently in today's era, especially deep water species. But uh, if I'm forced to take a side, I'm gonna have to say no to a Loch Ness monster. I'm I'm all for the continued search, though. I I can't wait to hear about what nifty things they find. I just don't think it's ever going to be a plesiosaur-like animal. But if some great MIT and JPL minds thought it was plausible that something was there, well, maybe. I, again, I'd love to see them still researching the ecology of the lock regardless. Ugh. So how was that for a, a really long maybe, but I don't think so? Holy moly. Are you done waffling over there now? <laughs> I did waffle, didn't I? Sorry, Scully. <laughs> It's okay. So it's, I'm hoping it's safe to say that we can move on now to the Yeti. Sure. Yeah. So Yeti is the correct term for the abominable snowman. And this bugger, he has a super duper long history of sightings too, usually in the high elevations of the Himalayas. He's sometimes giant, um, but he's long haired, large footed hominid, if the stories are to be believed. The first English citation um, it goes back to 19, excuse me, 1832 and the, the Journal of the Asiatic Society of Bengal. Stop right there. Um, I won't go. Um, can you define hominid for me? Oh, hominid. Uh, human-like. Bipedal, the walks on two feet like a human. Okay. Just not for me, but for our <laughs> listeners. You may proceed. <laughs> Thank you. Anyway, um, well, I won't, I won't go through um, his whole history. But the long story short is persistent stories from folks of many different nationalities seeing a bipedal something at these high elevations, um, somewhere that sort of qualifies as difficult to really monitor or say we fully explored. And there's different theories at work here. You know, some say it's actually a few species that we've lumped into this Yeti lore, um, but we do have a long history of supposed Yeti sightings and signs. Okay, but what do you think? Ooh, tough question. Um, I mean, let's talk about the Himalayas for a second. This is a pretty robust mountain range by anyone's standards. It's located in Asia, and it separates the plains of the Indian subcontinent from the Tibetan Plateau. And it's where the Indo-Australian and the Eurasian tectonic plates meet, in, in theory. Um, when we look at that geography... We're talking about some serious mountains, soaring heights, steep, jagged peaks, valleys, and alpine glaciers, often of ginormous size, topography cut super deep by erosion, seemingly bottomless river gorges, these complex geologic structures, and even a series of, of elevational belts or zones that display totally different ecologies of flora, fauna, and climate. When we look at the Himalayas from the south, and they appear as this gigantic crescent with the main axis rising above the snow line where snowfields and alpine glaciers and avalanches, they all feed lower valley glaciers that are actually the source of most of the Himalayan rivers. 
The greater part of the Himalayas, however, lies below that snow line. Um, and what's also nifty is that the mountain building process that created this range where those two major tectonic plates theoretically meet is still active. So that means that as the bedrock is lifted, considerable erosion and, and gigantic landslides and stuff still occur. And I think this is actually where I can chime in with some science that I know about this topic. And for anyone that doesn't know, both K2 and Everest are a couple of peaks in the Himalayas. So, so you, everyone knows who what Everest is, and K2 is the second tallest mountain. So yeah, I'd say they're serious mountains. And gentle way of classifying them stuff. And it's kind of interesting that you pointed out tectonic movement as a theory, because I bet a lot of listeners discount stuff when they hear it's a theory. But it's a good point to remind everyone that theory doesn't mean what they chalk it up to me. Like you mentioned, Steph, plate tectonics is still a theory. But back to the Himalayas, these are the tallest and some of the most rugged and deadly peaks in the entire world. Part of that is because the mountain range is still pretty young. We can actually tell that because of the sheer jaggedness. It's because time hasn't had much of a chance to start wearing these peaks down. And obviously the greatest, most well-known example of this is probably the Appalachian mountain chain in the east, eastern half of North America. Those peaks were presumably much taller than the Himalayas or even the Rocky Mountains of today, but over time they have weathered down and have eroded and are not as sheer and as jagged. Anyhow, I know there's a ton of interesting wildlife over there, and there's some species that are teetering on the edge of extinction, like the Indian rhino and the Kashmir stag. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. So to answer your question on what I think, well, I think the geographic challenges means there's potentially some unknowns. The, the frequent changes and the climate differences, those do mean some distinct challenges for long-term species survival, um, you know, like isolated pocket populations and such. But until we have some valid evidence, I'm going to stay firmly on the fence with, with the Yetis. Um, I, I think another thing that makes this one interesting is that they do actually speculate that the accounts of, of things that have been reported as being seen equate to four unique cryptids um, because of, of different descriptions and that we've just sort of lumped all of those into one. So for me personally, I don't know. I mean, it's a great environment for rare species to stay hidden, maybe, maybe even larger species, but I'm, I'm still out to lunch on that one. What about you? <laughs> you sure you can't leave me out of this discussion? Daryl... <laughs> Um, I reserve judgment, but I, I like that you say that there's four unique, potentially four unique cryptids, because I'm always harping on subspecies. So I'm wondering if there's one species of Yeti with four subspecies of Yetis. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you're not wrong, Steph. The, the geographic challenge in this case is a pretty big one, uh, but the climate is also sort of extreme. So I'm not going to say we know everything by any means, but I just don't know if I could support a Yeti theory. Okay, well, let's let's move on to the good old Bigfoot, or since you speak Canadian, the Sasquatch, the undisputed North American hide-and-seek champion. <laughs> ah, I totally didn't know Sasquatch was Canadian for Bigfoot. Yep, 
So I guess you're not as fluent as you thought. But anyway, (laughs) that term, it was coined in the 1920s to describe the British Columbia version of the unknown hairy giant. But these these are the same critters. Bigfoots, big feet, whatever. Sasquatch. Sasquatch history shows this cryptid to be a resident of the Pacific Northwest, mostly in British Columbia, Alberta, Oregon, Washington, Northern California, and Idaho. Um, Bigfoot is supposedly this large, hairy, barrel-chested giant with equally giant feet. And of course, he's also a hominid, humanoid in in his features. And we can sort of see him as the American lower elevation and darker haired version of the Yeti. while legends of Bigfoot actually do range back through Native American history, the biggest push actually came with the Patterson-Gimlin film in 1967. It's the one with the, the female Bigfoot who's crossing a dry creek bread uh, near Bluff Creek, California. But it's never been satisfactorily debunked. And I will say that Patterson went to his deathbed swearing to its authenticity. And Gimlin, who's still alive as far as I know, but he, he also swears it was not a hoax. Can I throw the yellow flag here? That's a football term for crime, <laughs> calling a foul. But the, the issue with Bigfoot is that this isn't the deep and murky lock, nor is it the high peaks of the Himalayas where there's not much else around. We're talking about the Pacific Northwest. I agree, Scully. And the location on this one is actually one of my sticky points. Did I ever tell you that that for many, many years, I was friends with one of the bigger uh, Bigfoot researchers? Actually, you did not. I don't think you ever told me that. Yep, yep. His name is Robert Morgan. Um, he's kind of big in the Bigfoot world, which is kind of funny and ironic because he's actually a really little guy. But anyway, they, they even mention him in my encyclopedia I told you about. Um, he's written a few books like the, the Bigfoot Field Manual or Field Guide and anyway, some others. But he was obsessed. He would talk for ages about Bigfoot and, and some of his stories were a bit out there. Um, but others, you know, they, they seemed plausible. But anyway, great old man, regardless. And I, I totally enjoyed his friendship and his company. You, you know, you mentioned some of his stories being a bit out there. Uh, did you know I have a Bigfoot story from my Tennessee days? <laughs> Actually, I, I don't know if I do. Well, I used to receive all the all the good calls. When it, whenever someone would call the agency and whatever person accepting the call didn't want to deal with it, they send it to me. And so, uh, one one of the issues we had to deal with is there there was a gentleman who lived in Middle Tennessee who swore he had not just a Bigfoot living near him, he had a B- Bigfoot family near him. And the crazy part was they loved coming in and feeding in his apple orchard. And he went so far as to send us examples of apples that were nibbled on by the Big Feet family. And so he would send us a range of apples with these bite marks in it and little bitty apples with little bitty bite marks showing the kid Big Feet. So I swear there's... There's all sorts out there. Um, anyway, with all this um, this Bigfoot lore being in areas with lots of serious outdoor th- enthusiasts, and even in some areas where it's highly populated, uh, because Bigfoot stories range all over the country, 
you'd think we'd have some other camera evidence or something. Uh, I don't disagree. Um, I read in the Smithsonian Magazine that if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, we don't know for sure if it made a sound. But we do know for sure that someone will say Bigfoot knocked it over. Oh, I'm going to give a plug for my favorite animal, the bear. You know a better better saying of that phrase? Mm. Where if a, if a tree falls in the woods, it's like the wolf hears it, the eagle sees it, and the bear smells it. How do you smell a tree falling? <laughs> anyway, I'm know. done. I won't interrupt you. <laughs> anyhow. Um, so where, where, okay. Um, anyhow. Okay. Because of the really good hoaxes that, that happened, because, you know, you mentioned something about, you know, camera evidence or something because of the really good hoax hoaxes that happen now. I don't, I don't think that a, a photograph is going to do anything. I mean, for this one, honestly, we're, we're going to need a carcass or some solid DNA. Okay. So of those three that you mentioned, Loch Ness Monster, Yeti and Bigfoot or Big Feets, are you a believer? Oh, that's, that's a tough question, D. You know, I'm not so arrogant to say that we know everything. Not, not we as in you and I, but, you know, we as in all humans. I mean, who are we to say that, that there weren't isolated populations of rare uh, and elusive wildlife that may have died off before people got a chance to formally recognize them? And there's hundreds of cryptids of legend. Maybe some were legitimate, uh, but maybe the population was already under duress, and now we'll just never know. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great point. And, and you know, all of this does sort of make me wonder if there are some rare creatures in history that literally went extinct before we got any real evidence of their existence. Yeah, that that's a super deep question, there, D. I mean, Scully. Um, I mean, fossil records, they're notoriously incomplete and, and animals of the recent past invite new challenges. And sometimes I look at those fossils and I think if I were to see that thing today, I totally wouldn't believe my eyes like that, that shark that's got the curved bottom jaw. It's just silly. But anyway, I mean, there, there are some super rare relics or mutations in nature um, that maybe were a thing like unicorns or dragons once upon a time, but you know, maybe maybe they're just fanciful imaginings yeah no i agree with you there and we do still have a lot of earth that's hard to catalog and that's either because you have like extreme environments whether or not it's the the deep ocean or the arctic or or anything like that another thing that really hampers us is political boundaries oh exactly when scientists were finally allowed into vietnam and cambodia boom tons of discovery same thing with with deep sea exploration it's funny but discovery and technology go hand in hand the better our technology gets the more things we find whether it's out in space things at an atomic level or new species but technology is also making it worse um and technology it promised to build build truth and cohesive understanding but it's in fact, it's made the truth more difficult than ever to discern because people use those same technologies to fabricate information. Um, but, but again, we can't discredit that sometimes weird things happen, like you know, giant dead aquatic animals wash up on the beach, and here we are stuck with the desiccated remains of some poor beast that you know we're trying to identify 
while the news me uh, news machines at the very same time are churning out these rating generating titles about sea monsters and all of these other crazy things. Um, I don't know, but ugh. <laughs> I mean, heck, just this month we just we think we discovered a brand new beaked whale species this month. So it's just so much to think about. But oh, so I do think though the one cryptid that we can legitimize are those those krakens, those old sea monsters of old. Because one look at a giant squid, I was totally on board with the kraken theory. He just got a little bigger and uglier as the stories were told. But anyhow, I'm. I'm absolutely babbling now. I just, I liked the idea of ending a really terrible year and, and starting a new one with something a little more whimsical and, and fantastical. Um, my son, he would have loved this topic. Yes, uh, he totally would have loved the idea of asking people to think about how much wonder our world may still hold for us. And, and to think, to, to be open to ideas and to discover more by learning. I'd love for us, if it's okay with you, Steph, to to dedicate tonight's podcast to him in his memory. He'd have gotten a huge ass kick out of you talking about cryptids. He, he's smiling right now because you're talking about cryptids even in the public spotlight. Yeah, for sure. So, and with that, whew, before I cry, um, actually, you do that. <laughs> Uh, Steph, you just take a breath. We, we, we all miss your son. He was a wonderful, wonderful person. Um, but I would like to remind everyone to subscribe to our podcast. Um, it's on their favorite podcast app. And don't forget, follow us on Facebook or Twitter, or you could always go to the wildlifeforyou.com website, which is wildlife for you, all spelled out. As we always say, probably the easiest way to follow us is on Facebook. Just follow along with the Wildlife for You Facebook page. And as always, when it comes to wildlife, your knowledge you is their existence. Have a safe and happy New Year's Eve, everyone. Thanks, Steph. And you did awesome. <laughs>